Welcome to the Sixth Dimension Podcast, where we review cult movies, horror movies, movies that you've never heard of. Welcome everyone to this week's episode of the Sixth Dimension. I am here with, yet again, third time in a row, filmmaker, uh, writer, Darren Stapp. How are you, Darren Stappen? I'm very well. How are you, sir? I'm fine. I'm fine. We, uh, this week was your pick, I think it was. The next episode's going to be my pick. Right. But this episode's your pick. The Long Goodbye by Robert Alton. Yes. Yes. Uh, yes so what, I guess before we go into the decision as to why you picked it, have you watched anything else of interest lately? No. You know something going through this pandemic? I say that. Last night I started watching Scanners, David Cronenberg. I've got a bit of a think of David Cronenberg again in terms of his, his early oeuvre. So I'm kind of working my way through that. So I wanted to see Scans. I don't think I'd seen it since the VHS days of being a kid. Really? Uh, yeah. And his How stuff, does it hold up? His stuff dates a little bit, but uh, what's happened is I think it's dated so much, it started to feel quite interesting again. Okay. I, I think films have that certain um, thing about it where – they go through a stage where they go, mm, that's really dated and it feels a little bit old-fashioned. And all of a sudden, it gets further along the line and they come back as quite interesting again. And it almost, because <laughs> yeah. it goes so far back into history, you can strip away the fact that it looks dated and it starts to look almost period. I think there's, there's that. It's like an old car, classic car, where you'll buy it, buy it, it could be anything, and then it, it has a period where it just looks very old-fashioned and dated and naff, and then it goes further down the line, it actually starts to become interesting. It becomes a, a statement and a period piece, and I think his cinema does that. Yeah, yeah. It, um, it's All of its films seem relevant regard, regardless of the era. I guess the only thing that really dates is the execution. Yeah. I mean, I think it, his execution in those early films have a charm to it, but they were very flat. I can't explain it. I think it's the lighting. Well, you know why? One of the reasons, one of the, it's probably the lighting as well, but I mean, definitely, and because you're an expert, at, uh, you know, you're a filmmaker, so you definitely know that stuff. But the reason why um, a lot of rabbit and shivers uh, look flat, and even to an extent, sometimes the brood, even though he's branching out a lot more on the brood, because that's when he started to get more power and more notoriety. The reason why they look flat is because the producers uh, wanted to showcase the special effects. And the only thing that they would spend money on in terms of, you know, elaborate setups would the special would be the special effects, because that's what they you would take time to shoot these things. Sure. So the mandate for everything else was over the shoulder, over the shoulder, close up mid shot or wide shot yeah. that's it that's literally what they told them the um don carmody i think the producer told them that so all you can really all this all the stuff with it did dialogue uh aside from the thrilling sequences you know mm. the chase sequences and 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 the special effects stuff they're have all f very flat have you ever seen cronenberg's um there's an arrow blue release i've got it of his short films his early yes yeah, but I haven't I haven't seen the Arrow version, but I have seen the short films. <clears throat> They're interesting. It's like stereo and stuff like that. Yeah, stereo and um, Crimes of the Future, Crimes of the Future, which is really 
disturbing. I think that's yeah. one of his most disturbing I, films, actually. He, he really, his, his really locations bad. are brilliant. Sorry? His locations are brilliant in those. Really mm-hmm. good. Yeah. And also, it's all shot in Canada, isn't it? And in the same place, the University of uh, Vancouver or somewhere. Was it Vancouver? Oh, yeah, okay. somewhere like that. I don't know. Has, I know they were shot in the university, same university. He brings us... He brings a certain atmosphere to his films. Though. Um, in fact, I've just been looking at some stuff from Shiver as reference for something I wrote. Um, just, I just like the lighting on it. Some nice Which, bit, which <laughs> bits were you looking at? I found a couple of stills of uh, Marilyn Chambers walking walking down the street, and it, it, it's perfect for something that I had been working on. And I kind of put it into the deck, the visual deck, and I went, this is it. That's that's the lighting, that's the look, that's the feel for a character. So I'm sure. still, if it ever gets made, you know. That sounds exciting. Um, there's actually, if you're interested, there's a script, uh, you know, Favor and Favor? Yeah. Uh, I actually just showed you, I sent you a picture of the Favor and Favor book I got. Uh, yeah, for the for the player. Yeah. Which I didn't expect it to be Favor. I was really excited. I was like, wow, this is, I, I literally collect these old uh, favor and favor books, like nice they're thing. the only consistency. Sorry, that's a nice thing to do. Oh, yeah, thanks. And uh, just they're so interesting those ones. I don't know why, but um, it's good taste, I guess. They you know, have, it, you know it is. It's like the Criterion Collection. They yes, really, they really bespoke the way they release things. I, I, I was thinking after our conversation last week about the fact that you know I've, I've taken all my film collection and taken them out there cases and put them into slip folders mm. that if i ever buy any more physical media all i'm going to buy is is criterion okay yeah yeah that's that, yeah, uh, that's a good thing to do just criterion but, but what about what about vinegar syndrome i really like some of their packaging yeah they're great but i think criterion is like putting a great book on your shelf yeah yeah i i think you know like i say after our conversation last week i, I think physical media is certainly as we come out of this um, pandemic, mm-hmm. the world of streaming is the norm. Will be it will kill off physical media in terms of mainstream. But stuff like Criterion, who are you know the the much more niche and the, a lot more bespoke, will survive mm-hmm. because people, regardless, will want those. Even though their streaming channel is very good, I've been looking at it, but it's not available here in the UK yet. So, which is a shame. That's good. Just get a VPN and get, yeah, it, get yeah. it your own way. We'll see down the line. I don't know. I still it's like it, physical media. And if I did anything, it'd be it'd probably be Criterion. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah. Uh, but back on the, the David Cronenberg thing, I forgot to mention there, um, uh, Faber and Faber actually released a sc- screenplay, printed screenplays of uh, Crimes of the Future, Shivers, Rabid, and Stereo as like a book. Okay. And I had that. And in the introduction, it says... I don't understand why anyone would want to read a screenplay, but that's the, the part of the introduction by David Cronenberg. I agree with him. I, even though the only time I'm really interested in reading a screenplay, screenplay, and I've done that is I've somehow got my hands on Tarantino stuff before mm-hmm. the film came out. I, I read Inglorious Bastards uh, maybe six or seven months before the film came out, maybe longer. And I thought the oh, script was great, oh, and sure. Django and Chains actually. I read both of those before the film came out. <gasps> Don't let Tarantino hear you, don't you? You can see the film totally, you know. It, yeah. Yeah, he really has his own voice 
he, he, he just jumps out on the page. Sure, yeah, yeah. His very um, his prose is really like he's like a novelist, the way he writes. Yeah, yeah, yeah. It's more like how he talks. Like it's more like him. You can really imagine him actually describing what's going on. It's like him if he if he sat you down or if he met you at a party and he explained his movie from start to finish. Yeah, it's his words. You can tell that it's not like formalized even. Even like Walter Hill or Paul Schrader, yeah. Mm. And, and um, but yeah, that's interesting. So, uh, why did you pick the Long Goodbye? It's a film um, again. Uh, I want to revisit because there's so many elements to it. I, I'm a massive Robert Altman fan, huge Robert Altman fan. Mm-hmm. I've even got the um, the great book that just came out. Came out maybe two years ago. And it's like from Caskin. Uh, it's, I can't have got it here, hang on a second. I should have it out. Yeah, it's the, uh, no, it's the Abrams. Oh, okay, cool. The Abrams book, where they're doing a whole series of them. They did Wes Anderson and the Don Altman. I don't think we've done any more yet. And they're really fantastic to pick up. And this one's actually, his wife, I think, has written it. And she's put together so much um, material. Behind Catherine, Catherine Altman, is it? Or I think so. And it really goes through his whole career. And for someone who's a big Robert Altman, I think he's a quintessential Semitism director, I think. Yes, yeah. absolutely. You know, he's there's something very quintessential about him. I mean, I know he came back in the in the nineties and he had quite a few hits post the player. <laughs> but um if you look at his kind of uh Zuvra, it, it's it's quite stunning. I don't think there's anyone else who has like if you look at Scorsese, which everyone goes, oh yeah, Scorsese is the seventies. You know, he's the director of the seventies. Incredibly so, yeah. But his films are very much they have a a signature. They have Scorsese's signature. I mean, I'm a big Coppola fan. I've always loved Coppola over Scorsese, even though I, which is hard to say because I love them all. You know, mm. but Altman is someone else because every film's so different. Yet so Altman, and so he ha- it has such a kind of um, punk rock aesthetic to his work, you know, which is pre-punk rock. There's something about his work. I mean, look at Mash. Mash is still you can put that on, and it is one of the most entertaining films you've ever mm-hmm. seen. It's brilliant, Mash. And unfortunately, it's kind of hijacked by memories of the TV show. The film, the film itself, is very. Um, Irreverent. Imagine it coming out. It's very sophisticated. Yeah. In terms of the way it's shot, his direction, his casting, you know. And, you know, when we come to The Long Goodbye, uh, and before that, Three Women as well, and Nashville, and Shortcuts, and, you know, Kansas City, and, um, you know, come back to Image, the- Images as well. Yeah, and McCabe and Mrs. Miller, which is another one of my favourite films of all time. I love that film, you know, so much. And these are films that I constantly go back to and revisit on quite a regular basis. Um, The Long Goodbye, for me, when I first saw it, what I liked about it was, well, I think we talked about this last time. It really fits that widescreen format, and it has that neo-noir Los Angeles atmosphere which I, I, I seem to gravitate towards whenever I see that in, in cinema especially in the 70s 
you know, it's um, Nina Van Pelham, who, again, was an American gigolo talking about Paul Schrader, which, again, we always have these connections we find in the films we talk about. Um, she's in this as well. And mm-hmm. something amazing about her driving at night in her Mercedes, you know, um, uh, soft top, you know, with the roof down, which, again, yes. another thing which is an American gigolo, but it's Richard Gear riding. And something about them driving around that kind of sun-bleached Los Angeles at night, uh, day and night, uh, something about it I really love in cinema. I don't know. I, I, and I, I kind of, um, I just gravitate towards these films in the 70s. There's something about them that is very sophisticated and very layered. And they kind of, what Altman did, he ripped genres apart and put it back together like a collage that didn't make sense, but made total sense. You know, mm-hmm. starting with his overlapping dialogue, the fact that he cast Elliot Gould as Philip Marlowe. I mean, that's the, the way to start with this. <laughs> think about it. Mm. Elliot Gould, who was very counterculture at the time. I think maybe, and he was like the biggest star on the planet. I mean, a lot of people remember him now as um, Phoebe and Ross's dad in Friends, but you've got to understand in the 70s, he was the Brad Pitt of his time. You know, he's a little bit post Burt Reynolds, and he, I, I don't know, I mean, you know, it's that time when these movie brats were, were, were casting out of New York and were using these very ethnic looking uh, actors, where mm. uh, prior to that you had the kind of square jaw blonde kind of, you know, leading, classic leading man, and all of a sudden you have this kind of more ethnically looking directors, which were very interesting, and you put in Elliot Gould in, which is a very classical role, which was played by Humphrey Bogart or Robert Mitchum, yeah, when you think of Philip Marlowe, you think of those two actors as your quintessential Marlowe, then all of a sudden you've got this kind of stoned, a little bit out of the time is he, he looks like he's wandered in from a different period into, and just woken up in the seventies, you know, yeah. and he, he's a little bit behind everyone else in the film, which I quite like. And it takes a while to get used to that and kind of adjust to the style that Ellie, um, you know, what it's a bit like, it's a bit like when Johnny Depp did Captain Jack Sparrow for the first time. And, you know, I think Disney went, what the hell is he doing? And he was doing Keith Richards, and it was, you know, this drunken kind of stoned, slightly off-kilter kind of performance. And Elliot Gould does the same thing. And once you kind of realise that, he kind of throws everything under the bus, Altman. And, you know, he's going out to get cat food. I mean, and he's in that amazing apartment, which is up in the hills with a lift. Um, And then you've got... I'm jumping ahead, but you've got like um, uh, Mark Rydell playing a Marty Augustine, the gangster. Um, and he's, he's actually terrifying. Uh, and he's very, if you know Mark Rydell, who um, he was, a, he's a director. He did on Golden Pond and Cinderella Liberty and Harry, um, Harry and Tonto go to New York again with Elliot and James Carr. Yeah. Um, he, yeah, he was a quite a Pretty soft, soft dramas or comedies. Yeah, Cinderella Liberty is great, actually. It's mm. really cool. it's based I, on a Daryl Ponskin. Ponskin, I forget it. He wrote um, the Last Detail. Yeah, that's right. That's right. Um, mm. 
and it has James Khan, who again is probably my quintessential actor from that period. I love James. Yes, yeah. Big, big and, and, and Gene Hackman as well, one for me. But yeah, Hackman's you're right. James Khan is pinnacle. I mean, you know that that that's it. You know, you talk about you know James Khan, Robert Duvall, um, Elliot Gould, um, you know, where Gene Hackman. You don't really have that type of actor at the moment in um, in Hollywood. But they're, no. there, but they're, they're, they're kind of second and third tier uh, roles. You yeah, know, yeah. Chris Hemsworth and this, that, and the other, blah, blah, blah. I mean, John C. Riley. Maybe like Sam Rockwell, maybe. Yeah, and John C. Riley. Oh, actually, Robert Downey Jr. was, you know, when you think about it, was probably was probably very much of that era, I'd say. I mean, yeah, I mean, you could see... But he's gone now. Robert Downey, you could see him doing the Elliot Gould role in the longer by now if to remake it. But you know who I'd cast, actually? Maybe oh. it's on the nose because it, it reminds me a little bit of him. It's, it's Sasha Baron Cohen. Okay, yeah. Yeah, I, can Sasha Baron Cohen do... Like sedate, I think so. Because I, 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 even when he plays a dog, like a dog lodger in uh, Grimsby, he's sort of wiry. Yeah, yeah, but it's like anything. Until they do it, everyone thinks he's the this, that, and the other. But you yeah, know, that, that's true. Yeah, I always think comedians make the greatest dramatic actors. I mean, look at Robin Williams in his latter days. Look at Adam Sandler recently. You know, it's it's the same sort of thinking you, you, you've got to look at the, the humor and then look between the cracks and i think good directors kind of see certain things and i think if they can pull it out not every comedic actor can do serious but i think a lot can because you know it's tears of a clown isn't it yeah there's very much a, like a clown aspect to to uh what's it uh, elliot gould's performance in this film Great, he's absolutely fantastic in it. I mean, I think it's probably his best role. I really, and mind you, I like him in Captain yeah. One as well. But um, great film. But yeah. <laughs> his silent partner, he's a really good. Have you seen Silent Partner? Yes, yeah, yeah, I have. I, I, I saw it many years ago. Uh, it's very much. Yeah, a, I mean, I remember the cover on the VHS with the Father Christmas. Yeah, yeah, uh, a very, uh, very interesting yeah. Father Christmas styled uh, thriller, in yeah. the same vein as um, Reindeer Games. Yeah, that's right. Yeah. Does Taking a Pelham One Two Three have Santa, Santa Claus? Hmm. Does Taking a Pelham One Two Three have Santa Claus? No, Taking Pelham One Two Three is uh, is Walter Matthau. I mean, there's another example. You know, Walter Matthau was known primarily as. A comedic actor and then yes, yeah. taking a poem one two three charlie barrick and the, another film which is lesser known by him playing serious is the laughing policeman which is not as good a film as the other two but sure. his performance in it is excellent sure i've never seen laughing policeman yeah yeah it, it's really kind of um him playing really kind of draining away all the comedic ticks which you see in the Taking the Pelham 123 and Charlie Barrick, yes. these totally ironed out. It almost he's flattened 
uh, 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 he doesn't he can't rely on his usual grab bag uh, but yeah. interesting yeah. You know, probably not the time people because people want to see Matt out being Matt out comedic or slightly semi-serious but it's interesting now again with history you know when you revisit things yeah he's played several sort of brash violent roles I think it started for him with failsafe maybe yeah and then uh, which is you know quintessential new new Hollywood film definitely but I'm thinking like I saw a movie that came out maybe two years ago and Elliot Gould's in it and it's it's got like Jermaine Clemens from Flight of the Concords and it's two years ago and I I thought you know I honestly thought that Arthur in it doesn't he yeah, I honestly, yeah, he, he plays the father in that trailer. Yeah, it's, I didn't like it that much, but I, I actually saw it because I wanted to see Elliot Gould in it. And he's maybe in his 70s or something like that. He hasn't slowed down at all. Like, he's as he snappy as he was in the 70s. Maybe not mash snappy, but still, at least Harry and Walter go to New York snappy, you know? Yeah, I mean, it's like anything, you know, he, he, he was that counterculture type. Or actor, you know, it's yeah. it's a very different different persona now. But it's quite funny. Any personal connection I have to it is um, how I started in the industry as a director was I was um, assistant to a guy called Tony Kay who did American History X, mm-hmm. which had Elliot Gould in. And I remember oh, Tony, that's right, yeah. I, and I remember reading the script before he made it, and I said, "Who are you going to have for the teacher?" And he goes, "Elliot Gould, Elliot Gould. I love Elliot Gould." You know, I think for someone who was um, Tony's age, Gould uh, was very much the hipster counterculture kind of cool actor that um, really resonated with with him, you know. Mm. And, uh, wow, yes, of course. Because I think I actually might have mentioned, you know, James Kahn would be great for this. And he went, no, Elliot Gould, Elliot Gould. Which he did (laughs) use James Kahn as a teacher in Detachment, which was his... Follow-up film, well, third film, um, which is good. So, yeah, that's that's my personal attachment to that. <laughs> cool, that's um, fantastic. That yeah. thing for the teacher, yeah. And he he's really good in that film too. Like yeah, this. very good, superb in it. He, he's you know, dog that was right for him. Yes, yeah, and that he can shake off really easily as well. Like he can he can be vibrant and funny and. You know, have a le- have an electricity to him that sort of a young, a younger, per- much younger person. Yeah, would have, he, he even very, nowadays, you know, the, the oceans eleven, twelve, and thirteen. Even though it was, it was border on caricature and a little bit, but very good. He he, he handled it very well. Um, you know, mm-hmm. he, he he's still kicking around. They're still doing his thing as they all are. You know, um, they don't have the same careers as maybe Pacino and. De Niro still have, but they don't have their careers anymore. Even though I think Pacino's having a bit of a um, renaissance in terms of the quality. Um, yeah, well, yeah, he, has he? I mean, I can only really think of once upon a time. Yeah, I mean, I, even though I, I just sat through Hunter's the TV show with Pacino. Oh, that's right. Yeah, this week. Uh, um, and I have to admit, I, I wasn't a massive fan of it. I thought it was. It, it made me cringe a lot, and I thought the subject matter was how can I say it? It made a sham of it. I, I just, I just thought it was just, it was just wrong. It was wrong on so many levels. Even though the intent was good, but I thought it, it didn't quite work for me. I thought at the beginning I was really enjoying it. I thought oh, actually this is quite good, and by the time it 
I'd got through ten episodes. I kind of went, mm, no. <laughs> ten episodes? I thought it was like four. No, it's no. ten episodes. And it took me a while. It took me three weeks to get through it. Jeez, but, that's not a good sign at all. Yeah. But, yeah, um, Mark Rydell, I'd like to have seen him do a, a lot more acting. You know? Well, he was an actor before he became actor. a director. Well, that's right. But his, yeah, his, with the same Jewish theatre that Sidney Lumet uh, did they? began his career with. Yeah. Right, okay. Okay, I didn't know that. But um, mm. he, as Marty Augustine, is, I mean, he, it's, again, he plays this kind of crime boss. But it's almost like Lenny Bruce is a, a crime boss. You know, he, he's <laughs> hysterical. And it's, it's so in your face and mm. scary because he's charming and you think, oh, this guy is just brilliant. And then the violence is so, uh, even today, you know, what year is um, the film? I think, yeah. Um, 73. Okay, so, you know, it's a few years into, you know, the early 70s. And yeah. the violence in that film is really extreme. It must have been quite shocking because the film wasn't well received when it first came out. Which was a no. marketing campaign. They they um they first kind of advertised it as a kind of detective thriller, which you know it has elements on, but it's again it, it's taking it and inverting it, and then they redid it. I remember um, when I first started seeing the film, seeing um, the Jack Davis, who was a, a cartoonist for Mad Magazine. He did the re as as they did in those days. They re-released movies, the uh, second run, third run. You know, this is pre, you know, home video. And they, when they did the second release of the film, maybe a year or so later, they advertised it with like a um, this kind of Mad Magazine cartoon poster, which mm. kind of caught the kind of surreal um, tone of the film. It has a dreamlike quality to it as well, it's, which is the use of the song The Long Goodbye, which was written by John Williams, I think. And it appears all the way through the film in different guises. Like when Elliot Gould rings a, um, a phone bell, you hear it, you know, and you hear people singing it just off camera or, you know, in the background or on a radio station. And you just hear different ver variations of the same song along goodbye all the way through. So lots of yeah. really clever little things all the way through it. And the story's good. The story, Absolutely, yeah. Yeah, the ending's great. And it's actually got Arnold Schwarzenegger's, uh, I think, first live action performance something like that yeah yeah, yeah he's, he's very recognizable in that yeah film. you know it's like he altman definitely had like a, a very good talent for spotting faces like he like sergio leone or federico Lo fellini yeah and um but yeah the story is kind of peripheral i mean the characters are driving the whole thing uh i like the um I do, even though altman wasn't much of a cinephile you can tell that there was a lot of city in this film I think mainly because it was shot in Los Angeles but also because of the pedigree I mean he was working with Lee Brackett as a writer filmish Zygmunt as a you know, cinematographer etc etc you know the last shot echoes you know uh, the third man yeah or um, you know you've got the opening scene with uh, the, uh, actually another another Carol Reed film where the woman gets bottle smashed in the face of the odd man out with James Mason that's right yeah, yeah, yeah. that's true that's true and yeah, a lot of it is, uh, you know, almost like an essay of a film and taking bits and pieces and put together a collage. I think you put it better. Collage. And yeah. um, it, it, it's, it's, it's a mixture of something that's, it feels it has a 40s 
kind of skeleton, but then mm. it's rest in this kind of 70s, you know, movie brat, fuck you, uh, essence to it. And, and, and somehow it fits. Altman gets it to fit on the skeleton. Yes. You know, I mean, he was a film critic, I think, Altman, uh, before he became a director, actually. Really? I didn't know that. I mean, he did a lot of commercial films. He did a lot of, like, corporate stuff. Jeez. And, you know, he, he is very film literate, but also he, he was very much on set. I mean, he was a lot... He was actually older than, like, Spielberg and Scorsese and Coppola. Uh, but yes, he, much older, yeah. And he, what, I don't think he was that actor-friendly. I, I get the feeling that not many actors really enjoyed working with him. They didn't understand the madness. I think he, his sets were quite wild. Oh, yeah, because yeah. he was looking for this almost he, he, I think he liked to create chaos mm-hmm. and throughout the chaos just focus on something and then bring that to the forefront and that's you feel that in his films and it's certainly like lots of films like shortcuts you know he, there's something about he wants everything to be blown up but you know when it explodes he'll just find an element and he'll, he'll focus the camera on that and that's kind of how his films that's why they're so interesting now. I mean, you can see people like Paul Thomas Anderson, the influence he has on him. Uh, yeah, absolutely. Yeah, I, and well, Tom PTA was hired as a replacement director if, if uh, Ron Holman oh. didn't finish his last film, The Prairie Home Companion, because right. he was well, really sick. Yeah, you know, there's some debate as to whether like a third of its PTAs or just one or two scenes or nothing. I have not you seen know? it. I've not seen Ferry Hope. I saw, I saw it, but when I, I, sh- I shouldn't have seen it. I, I wasn't a fan of Altman back then. And uh, I think I should revisit the same way. That's like, I wasn't much of a fan of Long Goodbye. And then because of this podcast, I rewatched it. And I was like, uh, what, what, what was wrong with me? And I, this is an amazing film. This is quintessential 70s. I, I love it. I want to bathe in it. Well, my other favorite film by Altman, Mm-hmm. Uh, is a small film he did with Shelley Duvall and Sissy Spacek called Three Women. And I am a huge fan of that film. I absolutely adore it. And um, it's another film I'd go... Again, going back to why Altman is probably one of my favourite directors of that period. And it wasn't a conscious thing, oh, I'm going to like Robert Altman, because you know, so many other directors reference him. It just mm-hmm. popped up on me. I, I liked his films, you know... Instead of you know how you, you come into you become fans of someone because that's that director and you watch everything he did. It was just yeah. I kept finding that it was Robert Altman. This film I loved. It was Robert Altman. Even Popeye, <laughs> I think is great. Yeah, yeah, Popeye. that's an interesting one. Popeye. Every, everything by him is interesting. I think um, yeah. you can glean something from it. I remember watching actually. He did a like a, a mini series, political mini series in the eighties. And uh, one of them was a um, uh, like a monologue by Philip, oh, a monologue with um, what's his name, Philip Baker Hall as yeah. Richard Nixon. I um, can't remember what the title was, but think, it was really yeah, good. I know. Well, I think that's where PTA picked up on um, uh, Philip Baker Hall, wasn't it? I yeah, think. yeah. I think that's a good point. It was called the Honor. Uh, Honor. Um, let's look it up. Oh uh, yeah, uh, on, yeah. I know what you. Secret honor. Secret That's on. it. I'm pretty sure. Yeah, secret honor. Um, favorite scene from this film? 
I, I really like the um, well. I like uh, where anything with uh, uh, Mark Rydell. Yes. Yeah. I mean, yeah, he, he is just electric on the screen. But I really like the uh, inter in uh, when the police bring him in for questioning because that I've never. But also, it, it irritates me that scene as well because you can see it's all improv. I think it is. Right? <laughs> They're just letting Elliot Gould kind of just, you know, do what he wants to do. You know, sure, starts, yeah. Yeah, yeah, I'm, a, I'm a, a quarterback and he's putting all the, you know, the um, the fingerprint print on his face and then he starts doing Al Jolson. It, it, it's, it's weird, but it's good. It's very good. It's weird, yeah. It's sort of like you can tell it's... it's like the improvisational style is very influential, like among other filmmakers who don't do it as well. I don't think, uh, I think there's a lot of Robert Altman in, um, uh, what's his face? Who's the guy who did uh, Funny People? Get knocked up. Peter Chess. Peter Chess. No, no, he did. Um, oh, Judd Apatow. Judd Apatow. There's a lot of Ap Altman in Apatow. Um, you know, I've not really seen the many Jadap. I've seen plenty of people actually. And um, what else has Jadap Patel done? Oh, loads. Uh, he did Forty Year Old Virgin. Uh, um, uh, he did uh, the TV show Freaks and Geeks, which okay. is very kind of it's kind of like Berlin Alexander Platz kind of. Right. You know, <laughs> it's based on a comedy show based on inspired by Berlin Alexander Platz, the Fastbender miniseries. Right. Okay. Which is kind of weird. Like you kind of, I mean, but art comes from the most unusual places. Like, but uh, yeah, I'm not a big fan of uh, Aptow. That sort of improvisational style, where it, it feels like they let the camera go a bit too long. Mm. It's just like people keep doing cappers and jokes and cappers and jokes. And but it seems to work in this film because he's he's the Marla character is trying to evade the truth. You know, he's trying to in order to protect his friend, which is the ultimate lie, because it's not his friend. Yeah. I mean, the, the twist is good. I mean, did you see it coming? Let's not spoil it for anyone, but did you see the twist? No, no. I mean, it, but that's the thing. It wasn't a twist to me. It wasn't yeah. a twist to me when I when it when it happened. Right. Um, it didn't really feel like it was got one up on me or anything like that. Right. It, it felt like natural to the story. Yeah, I think, I think just, what was more shocking was the bit where he shoots his friend. Yeah, maybe what felt inevitable after that was the bit where he ignores the girl. I, I should say spoilers. Sorry, but um, I'll put in a warning just before we do uh, an audio warning. But um, I like that shot. Uh, when he's walking uh, down that kind of um, driveway. Mm -hmm. And is it, does Nina Van Palen, I can't remember, someone, someone drives up past him. Is it Nina Van Palen? Or yeah, I'm pretty sure. Yeah, it's a, yeah it is. Because it ties her to him. Uh, it ties her to the um, Carol Lennox character. Is she on a horse or is she in the car? I can't remember. Uh, she's in a car. In a car, yeah. Just, and uh, Marlo starts blowing on a harmonica. Yeah, it's good. It's good. And it's also got Henry Gibson in, which is, he's a very, he was in, um, he was in Paul Thomas Anderson's uh, Inherent Vice. Is he in that as well? I thought he, I thought he died. No, he's it's, it's in Inherent Vice. I'm sure he, he plays, really? he runs the uh, sanctuary that um, Eric Roberts is in. Yeah, so, and 
Martin Short's character play? obviously he's plays. Oh, well. he's oh. in Magnolia. He's in the bar scene. Is he? Yeah, he's in Magnolia. He's in the. He's like a um, a bar floor. Okay, yeah, yeah. I don't remember. Yeah, yeah. I remember him. I should revisit those his his movies, but Magnolia. Magnolia is It's really good. Um. um but yeah, in, in Heron Rice, uh, Martin Short is playing Henry Gibson. Martin Short is fantastic in that. Again, <laughs> you know, that's such a, we've got to do a podcast on um, Inherent Vice because I think it's a film that people, um, I certainly, when, when I saw it at the cinema, I wasn't sure of it. I wasn't sure. sure. And again, I've watched it over and over again uh, and I, I've actually grown to really like it. Okay, yeah. It was yeah. like Master. I was watching an appraisal of The Master on YouTube a couple of days ago. And how that film has really picked up its, uh, you know, its fans where when it first came out, it was kind of really sneered at. Because, you know, remember it was following that There Will Be Blood, which is, mm. you know, is one of the greatest films of the past 20 years, I think. Um, mm. And... It is something very special, very dense. I mean, well, let's not talk about PTA because he's in the whole whole podcast to himself. But well, I mean, it's it's almost inevitable that people, when they talk about Altman, they will talk about PTA because Altman is like the number one influence for PTA, especially considering when you think of modern day auteurs, like people who are in, I'm talking about auteurs in the studio system, so to speak, in the in the mainstream, in the zeitgeist, mainstream zeitgeist. It's really only PTA and Quentin Tarantino. And even then, PTA's movies don't make money. Mm-hmm. Sorry, I missed that. Even then, PTA's movies don't make money. No, they don't make money, do they, at all? No. But, he, you know, he's he's a staple of 21st century cinema. You know, he, yeah. He, I mean, it doesn't matter. But it's sort of it's strange to me how Tarantino's movies can make money and PTA, who I think those two are kind of equals in terms of their output. Yeah, like I see a lot of. I don't understand why, you know, Phantom Thread doesn't do that well, but once upon a time in Hollywood does, or whatever the equivalent to those two films filmmakers happens around that time. Hollywood, uh, once upon a time in Hollywood, had Brad Pitt and um, Leonardo. Oh yeah, that's that's a good point actually. And yeah. also, his films. With Tarantino, especially that one, he's he's a shiny, boiled sweet that when you bite into it is very sour, but you've got to buy into it. At first, it's very sweet, and, and that's what he's mm. for. Whereas I think um, PTA is a lot more denser. He his book his films are really are novels transferred to the screen, where Tarantino's films are screenplays transferred to the screen. So there's one less filter or barrier to go through with with Tarantino. He he writes to put on the screen, um, whereas PTA writes because he just writes and then he films what he writes. And I think you've got to be very film literate to really enjoy PTA. Where Tarantino, you can watch his films on very different levels. Gotcha. Yeah, and I think that's why his films. Uh, resonate better with people you know you know you can look at I know Django Unchained uh, it's, an, it's a western you know it's got quite a flashy fantastic 
big mainstream actor in, it's funny, you know. Um, and then it, it's talking about quite serious issues about slavery, etc., cetera, etc. Cetera, you know, you know, it has shades of Twelve Years a Slave and stuff. But the way he he reinterprets it and presents it to the audience, it's mm. you know, it, it, it sugarcoated a little bit, but it's not. But people can absorb it better. Where PTA stuff, it really is um, much more abstract in the way he tells it. It's become more and more so, certainly since um, there will be like if you look at. Boogie Nights, that is probably the film which you could parallel with um, Tarantino. Yes, yeah. And then yeah. When he hit Punch Drunk Lover, he, he, I think he really became a master of his medium where he, he, he was very confident with what he was doing so he could go throw the film out and just kind of do different things and somehow it'll all come back together and if it doesn't he doesn't care because it's still telling the same story he wants to tell so he yeah. could dare to be abstract yeah i think again yeah robert altman was the same i mean if you look at three women specifically which i think has more uh kinship with the phantom thread in terms of how that story is constructed and how how it's it's resolved. You, you, you can see it. Mm. It's again, it's, it's you know, with, with Altman, he had such a long career, ups and downs. You can see different shades of, of the director, you know, especially as he was getting older, you know, and trying out things and experimenting. And that, that's the whole thing with some directors. They grow up in public and they'll experiment just to stop, them, stop themselves being bored with themselves and sometimes it'll hit an audience immediately and sometimes it won't and sometimes it takes a while for people to circle back to um his films and get them you know yes yeah and i think altman is very much like that and probably pta is to some degree even though pta has so much um critical acclaim with everything he does mm-hmm. uh, what do you think um i'm oh, sorry I'm finish your question. No, go on, go on. i was going to ask uh, what do you think uh, altman's most underrated film is um, very good question. Bruce McLeod, maybe. Um, I think three. I like Images as well. Susanna York. I think that's a very unusual film. I don't know so many. Um, I don't know. Oh, Kansas City, maybe actually. Okay, yeah, that's that's the, that's a very. Uh, I think that was originally supposed to be directed by Alan Rudolph, who was a protege. Well, he was a unit on the longer by. Um, Sorry. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. Um, I think that, uh, I think you're right. Images is probably his, one of his most underrated. He's done so many that it's, it's so probably, many. there are a few underrated ones, aren't they? It's very hard, which is, which shows you how fascinating it is when you can look, you want that box set of blue, you know, 4k Blu-rays of everything, his whole career. Yes. You'd like the Scorsese as well, you know, at some point you can go, that's pretty much a good cutoff point and go, I just want everything so you can study it. Um, I don't know, that's so much to look at. I mean, you know one film I really need to see again by him? It's Thieves Like Us. Oh, yeah, the, yes. Uh, yeah. Okay, yeah. Which, yeah, talking about The Long Goodbye and... Carradine, is it? Yeah, yeah, Thieves Like Us. It's, it's, it's interesting. Also, I like California Split by him. 
Yeah, I just rewatched that alongside its right. semi remake, which is called uh, oh, Mississippi Rind, starring uh-huh. Ryan Reynolds. Oh yeah, yeah, yeah. Is who directed that? Uh, the direct the people who directed uh, Half Nelson. That's right. Okay, I've not seen it. It's actually really good. It's, I mean, not great. It's not. It's it's obviously like in the same way that you know, uh, Once Upon a Time in Hollywood is based on the life of Al Adamson and this his, and Gary Graver or whatever it is. Mm. Um, this film is based on you know Mississippi Grind is based on California Split, but yeah. it's yeah really really interesting. That's actually one of my favorite albums now that a friend of mine, Russ Nichols, who is on this podcast a lot, actually. He yeah. recommended that film to me. Um, yeah. Oh, it's brilliant. It, it, it's yeah. so good. I mean, I, I did a little review of it on my Instagram. Um, again. I read that, yeah. It, it, it was a really good review. <laughs> <laughs> they're getting better. I, I, I tried not to just review them clean. I kind of like to throw a spin on it for some reason. I don't yeah. know. Star was all right. But um, California Split is fantastic. It is again. It's you know you you watch that in comparison to something like Uncut Gems, uh, which is kind of I guess a little bit influenced by it. I think. Yeah, I guess I, those Safety guys—they're really influenced by Alton as well. I mean, very much so. Especially so more, more. I would think more along the lines of PT. More Altman filtered through PTA. I think. Yes, I think that he, makes sense. Definitely the the heir apparent. PTA, in terms of also that his his output, the way he does films, you know, Safdie Brothers have got a very specific style which is evolving. It, but it's it's very much a Safdie Brothers where PTA is, is constantly changing it up, constantly changing it up, and Robert Altman did the same. Where you know that that's what made it so interesting as as a director. But California Split, I, I um, again, it was a film when I first saw it. I wasn't sure. It, it was so crunchy uh, to, to absorb. Um, yes. Again, because it's so naturalistic the way he does dialogue, and you know, you don't know if it's improv or actual scripts. And it's probably a combination of both. Especially when you've got people like uh, you know Elliot Gould and um, um, what's his name, Siegel, um, George Siegel, 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 doing uh, playing off each other. Again, fantastic and. I love the fact that his films, as they date, they become more interesting. They become a real. They, they re, he really captures a, a, an essence of time that said again, which makes him quintessentially very seventies cinema. And I, I, the other thing I wrote in my review of California Split, which I think Altman does the most interesting, and something I take from, you know, just as an aesthetic I like, is his use of interior and exterior. And I think maybe I talked about this on the last podcast we did. The way he you really feel when you're inside an interior with Altman is something cavernous and very brooding and dark. And then it, it, it the sound changes and it's almost like listening to sound if you're in the bath and you go under the water and you're listening to exterior sounds. That's what his interiors are like when he shoots a film. And then when he goes exterior you're just hit by this uh, cascade of sounds and this bro- and this um, dirty sunshine of, of the day because it's these characters live it are quite nocturnal 
regardless. Again, very neo-noir influences. And when he's in the, they're in the casino in California Split, or you know, it, it's he's in that bar where he picks up his messages in The Long Goodbye, and then he'll walk out of these cavernous interiors into L.A. and that dirty L.A. sunshine smog. Yeah. He does transitions really well. Really well, really well. And I find that fascinating. I, I really like that aesthetic. I, I, you know, I love light. I love the way he uses it. And with it being Vilma Sigmund, I bet it's all available light. It's natural light. I'm not sure. That I'm not sure about. But I know that um, probably the best, for me, my favourite example of that use of sound design in, uh, in like, transit, his trans, use of transitional, transitions in sound design is in images. Right. Because as opposed to moving from location to location, mm-hmm. it's mainly there to represent the state of mind that the protagonist is in because yeah. it's, it's kind of a psychological thriller slash horror film mm-hmm. and yeah it's, it's meant to convey this woman's fractured mindset and I, it does it so perfectly that it actually is alarming to watch mm. Mm. but you know people usually cite Gosford Park as the number one uh, greatest sound designed on location film or sound sound recorded film and I think um they're probably right, but the technical prowess is there, but it's almost Kubrickian. And uh, Kubrickian really is probably most suited to Kubrick. But then again, he he tries. At least he tried. You know, he was still in his 60s. He was in his 70s or whatever it was when he did Gosford Park. Mm. And he was trying new things, which is remarkable. Yeah, remarkable. You know, he didn't, he didn't um, you know, for age as a director, I think he was always... Mm that upstart that he, he, when he came into directing, which he did come into directing a lot later than, you know, his contemporaries at that point. He, and I think he, at the same time, what kept him fresh wound a lot of people up. You know, yes. Like, yeah. You know, him and Warren Beatty didn't get on. on uh, again, again, I think Warren Beatty came from Warren Beatty bridges, um, that old school Hollywood before the seventies kind of movie brats kicked in. And I think he wasn't used to working with that style of director. And, you know, Altman was messy. He is a messy director, which is now you can appreciate it for his brilliance. But at that time, it's probably very, very weird for someone who came from such a traditional uh, background as Beatty did. Mm. Probably what made him want to direct himself, Warren, you know, later on. Definitely, yeah. But it, there's this quote in Easy Riders, Raging Bulls, where it says, uh, "The only um, uh, when you're making a when you're making Warren ba- a film with Warren Beatty, it's a Warren Beatty film. But the only person who makes a Robert Altman film is Robert Altman." Yeah, very much. And I think that's where the clash came. You know. Yeah, definitely. Yeah. Yeah, BT wants to be the star front and center, and Altman was the star, if you like, because it, you know he's so so much of an auteur in, in, in the way he directed. Yeah. They, they, the script they, was something they worked from. They didn't adhere to it. I think. But that's that's I think where another thing that Warren Beatty had a problem with. He very much sticks to the script. Yeah. Um, whereas Altman, obviously, as you pointed out, doesn't. It's a jumping off point for him, and and you know mm-hmm. I think mate, they go okay, that's that's a script. Let's rehearse it. What would you do? Okay, let's keep that. Let's let's take away that. It's just a guide, which is. Yeah, that takes some balls to do that. Sure, yeah. Well, you'd know more than him. 
no, I, you know, I, 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 I like the idea of a script being a script and then you work on it, but yeah, who am I to say anything? Um, I, I tried to do something recently where we played with improv. I, 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 well, I haven't started editing yet. I'm going to be interested to see how that happens. That's kind of, um, yeah. Yeah, I'd be interested to, to, to see what you've done with that. Yeah, your improv style. <laughs> we we, we had really a script cool and it was just timing. So we said, we'll just try that, try that, and try that. And we had one great actor and one, yeah, they're both good actors, but it was timing. We just had very little time to make it. So it's going to be interesting to see how we kind of cut all that together. But uh, it's coming. Sounds great. Um, yeah. Well, let's wrap this shit up. Um, any last words on the subject of a long goodbye? Uh, again, the reason we're talking about it is it's worth a revisit as we go further and further away from 1973. It's great to circle back to these type of films and you'll get a lot. You know, I, I think, you know, in a world where we are so obsessed with TV and streaming shows, they are the, they are the cinema of now that are the, clo- the most closely related to this type of cinema. That type, or maybe I'm not saying that clearly enough. That type of cinema now is on TV. Mm. And, you know, people who are tired of superheroes and explosions and very bad Star Wars films should circle back to these things. And because of some great actors, some great performances, some great cinematography, great sound design, great soundtracks, it's everything. If you love movies, these are the films you should be watching. Well, thank you very much, Darren. Uh, Fascinating, as always, to hear your opinion on these very fascinating films, too. Uh, I think that uh, you've led a lot of people to uh, uh, a lot of interesting titles as well. Uh, I know a couple of people who've definitely enjoyed your podcast, and uh, I thank you so much for being on the podcast. Thank you. Appreciate it. I'll speak to you soon. This podcast was produced, edited, and mixed by Sebastian Middleman. My collaborators for the series are Russ Nichols, David Connell, and Marae Starr.